Welcome to Courage and Spice. This is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'll share evidence-based resources and teach you proven coaching tools to help you transcend your self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick, a master coach and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this. Hey there, fabulous humans. So this month on the podcast, we're going to be focusing a bit on coaching, on the art and craft of it. And we'll have a few more episodes of that this year on the podcast. I know a lot of you listening are coaches or your therapists or counsellors or you mentor folks. I know a lot of you are working with a coach or a therapist. So let's have the discussion around what good coaching looks like, what it feels like, what it allows us to do. So today I wanted to talk about coaching mastery. This is something I am obsessed with, devoted to, certainly fascinated by. And as we're enrolling for the spring class of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy, I'm spending a lot of time thinking and writing and talking about what coaching mastery is. A lot of the coaches I know felt drawn to this work, feel like it's a calling. We help humans go from okay to great. We help folks navigate through all the ways that we protect ourselves from our own power and potential We help people milk the shit out of life and it feels like the best work on the planet. And doing it well really matters to those of us who feel called to this work. So I must admit, I'm always looking for mastery in my peers and coaches. I'm always looking for substance, for what's underneath the fancy marketing. So this episode is about the three elements of coaching mastery that I think every coaching client needs to be aware of. And this is from my own thinking, okay? So there aren't very many definitions of coaching mastery out there that I feel like I could get behind. And I guess this is partly because our industry is just so derivative. I found out there in practitioner training land, there often isn't much of a roundedness when it comes to mastery. I've never seen a practitioner trainer encourage students to think critically about the tools they're being taught. And in coaching academia, I've found there's often a tendency for research to be just a bit abstracted from the living, breathing complexity of humans. And of course, as in everything, there's always a third way. I think we need to combine the theory and evidence with messy, imperfect practice. So I describe coaching mastery as the willingness of the coach to do whatever it takes to show up for their clients with the clearest and deepest presence. Now I know this probably sounds a bit simplistic, but 10 years into this work, I keep coming back to this, that at the heart of mastery is that willingness of the coach to do whatever it takes to show up for our clients with that deep and clear presence. Now, I think there are three elements to this, three aspects of it that hopefully will bring this concept to life a bit more. So let's look at these. The first aspect of coaching mastery is the willingness to embrace what I've come to call the coaching paradox. And this is something I'm trying to put words to here. (laughs) But for me, this is about embracing the paradox of being with what is and what could be. 
deeply caring about both while remaining detached from all of it. I think the thing to remember is that our clients are smart people. They know themselves way better than we ever will. They have been through a lifetime of experiences in their one-off unrepeatable body. They have subjective memory and meaning making and protective beliefs. They have identities and qualities, a uniqueness. They have moments of pride and joy, hurt and shame. And every single moment has been contextual, situated in their lives at specific times. So if coaching was just a matter of changing your thinking, <laughs> our clients probably would have done that by now. So when we hold the coaching paradox, we can be in quiet awe at this phenomenal living, breathing human in front of us, just as they are, and we hold what could be for them. The vision that this person has of who they really are, their true nature underneath their doubts and fears and worries. So we need to be willing to be with the human who is here, right? Not the one you wanted, not that ideal client avatar that we all come up with in that marketing workshop that one time. But when you're willing to do this, the coaching has a different texture to it. There's just a deeper awareness. You can hear what the client is saying, but also what they might not be saying. And what is unspoken in the space between us wanting to be said. Now I'm lucky enough to have a really long friendship with Jack McNeil who is a leadership coach based in Canada and Jack has what I can only describe as Olympic level listening skills and when you get to experience that kind of substantial presence you really know just how bloody precious and rare it is to be seen in that way. So the coaching paradox of being with the client as they are and holding the potential for who they want to be. And there is an aspect of caring a lot about both and being lovingly detached from all of it. So the coaching paradox, the thing that Jack does so well is to be with the client as they are and hold the potential for who they want to be, for what is in the potential field, the space between us. And I use Jack as an example because I think sometimes when we're talking about this kind of thing, it can end up sounding like just a load of wank, right? Where it's really hard to grab hold of what we actually mean. But what I know when I talk to Jack, every conversation I have with her, it's about being seen and accepted and loved and believed in for exactly who I am in this moment and that willingness to see through all of my bullshit and to never hold it as a fixed place. Jack does that exceptionally well. Jack does that exceptionally well. And I think that's part of holding that paradox is both seeing the client for who they are and who they can be. And the second part of the paradox is about being quite lovingly detached from all of it. So this means that as coaches, we have to let go of all of our assumptions about the client, our expectations of the coaching relationship, our judgments about what they should do, our attachment to any outcome. We have to let all of that go. I think a massive part of this is about being 
really comfortable that our experience is never universal. This is not about what you would do. And you see a lot of that out there in the world, right? Where coaches are giving out a lot of advice, telling people what to do. We're really good at helping. <laughs> and you see it in coaching programs too. And you can just spot this because they're always called a strategy or a formula or a process. And what you start to see is once you've expended a lot of money trying to figure this stuff out, and I am so in that camp. But what you start to see after a while is that it's really just about what's worked for that particular coach. The coach has centered their experience, what's worked for them. And it means that there isn't much room for the client's nuanced and specific experience. So holding this paradox is a willingness to sit at the edge of what we know as practitioners. And this can feel edgy. It's a liminal space where we meet our limits and we can begin to stretch those limits. What I think happens when we're willing to hold that paradox is our clients get to experience something that is more than just problem solution, more than just the sometimes intellectual game of changing your thinking. We help our clients to make sense of their responses to the world, their beliefs and emotions and behaviors, the narrative threads that run through their lives, there's a lot of unlearning, unknowing, reimagining, restoring when we're supporting our clients to move outside of their current frame of meaning making and into a new place, a way of seeing themselves and the world differently. And this new way of seeing themselves doesn't exist yet. So we have to be brave enough to hold into that paradox of wondering where this is going, of being detached. There is so much in holding that paradox, that willingness to be detached and invested, to hold the client's truth as sacred and to disbelieve the validity of all the ways they protect and limit themselves. So yeah, holding the coaching paradox, that's the first element of coaching mastery. Now number two is the willingness of the coach to heal themselves. This work is a gigantic mirror for our own stuff and it leaks out all over the place, especially in client sessions. And this is so understandable. We are not moist robots, we're human. But most coach training doesn't even talk about this. So if you are a coach and you have some notion of what it means to be a good coach as being someone who is meant to have magically evolved past feeling frustrated or bored or activated by your clients. I want you to know that nothing has gone wrong. This is universal in every kind of talking therapy. The difference is that in the coaching industry, there is no requirement for us to be supervised. To have an experienced and trained person, we can take our coaching dilemmas too. Now this is slowly changing as our industry develops and matures and I highly encourage you listen to my interview with Chris Shepard in last week's episode. It's all about coaching supervision. But if we want to develop coaching mastery to be that deep and clear presence for our clients, to be able to be detached in a loving way, then we need to be so interested in when our own stuff gets involved. We don't park our humanity at the door. 
but we have to be able to know ourselves to know how to manage our stuff in the session to come back to our healthy adult self so being willing to notice off-brand reactions to a client any defensiveness or irritation judgment this is about looking at any urge you might feel to solve for the client to overhelp or if you're measuring client sessions by the number of aha moments they have or wanting each session to be tied up in a nice neat bow at the end we really need to look at the boundaries we don't honor in our practice practical things like being super flexible about session times and payment plans they're so worthy of your attention if you're questioning or second guessing your abilities if your self-doubt shows up with particular clients or perhaps particular kinds of challenges that clients bring this stuff is not benign and this isn't just about the clients we find tricky I'm really sorry to say what happens when you're working with a client you really adore when you become attached to preserving the relationship what might you be avoiding now Susan Sutherland who is in the self-belief coaching Academy has this great phrase that I'm so happy to share with you called ego snacking and that's when our client is throwing around tidbits of praise and credit and your ego starts snacking away we can get quite attached to that and it's worth looking at this this is asking for your attention so the willingness to heal ourselves means exploring our fears and worries and shadows and doubts we need safe places like supervision or coaching or even therapy to receive critical feedback and see good practice modeled I can tell you that this process is horrible and amazing being able to reflect on where you're getting all tangled up with your clients it will grow you faster than anything else you can do to develop your coaching skills and speaking of speediness and growth let's talk about the third element of coaching mastery this is the willingness to commit to an apprenticeship so back to this idea that so many of us feel that this work is a calling we feel called to it James Hillman was one of the best known writers on calling he's a depth psychologist and he argued that we all have a sense of personal calling some notion that we are alive here and now for a particular reason and that we grow into our potential during the course of our lives it's like the acorn the seed carries within it the blueprint and the potential to become the oak tree that takes time and so many of us get caught up in the speed of things that we need to choose a coaching niche and get a website and have a brand and make six figures and all of this rushing to complete these tasks none of which has anything to do with sitting with someone and helping them untangle what's holding them back from their own becoming well the magical internet has created a lot of pressure to figure it all out as soon as you can because who has time these days to practice and learn and reflect and falter and make mistakes and try again we constantly imagine ourselves to be running late and this robs us of our ability to fully participate in the process of our own becoming what helps me to come back to this is remembering that 
this calling is the work of a lifetime. It's beautiful work because it's not so much about doing and accomplishing. It's about developing and growing. It's about expanding your own self-concept as a coach into your own very unique and personal oak tree. And it doesn't look like any other coaches. And we want to have achieved all of our dreams and goals, but we don't necessarily value the work that must be put in to achieve them. We want to be coaches, for example, but we don't want to spend the years learning the craft of coaching. We see the results all around us, everywhere we look, overnight celebrities, instant experts, pop-up personalities, with so much more form than substance. As my grand would say, they're all mouth and no trousers. And I think this is because we've forgotten the value of a true apprenticeship. And the messages are really clear, like sometimes, sometimes you just have to step off this path you're determinedly striding along, following everyone else. And learn something new. And integrating that learning takes time. Embodying the lessons of your own lived experience. Not trying to co-opt or borrow the experience from others. That takes time. What if we made it totally okay to feel like you're not progressing? Because the myth of progress is another one of those profoundly pernicious myths that our culture totally wants us to buy into. But actually, most progress, in my experience, is made during times of apparent stasis. When we're not doing a damn thing. But we're letting stuff integrate. We're letting our learning and our understanding integrate. What if we made it okay to say that you don't know, you're not sure, you're still trying to figure it out? And to avoid, like the plague, the people who are trying to sell you ready-made solutions of their own. I think we really need to be able to tolerate the idea of an apprenticeship. To understand that what we don't know is okay. To do the proper learning. To find the right teachers to embody the necessary lived experience. Apprenticeship requires some humility. This is a little valued quality in a world hell-bent on individual instantaneous glory. And honestly, I don't know how long your apprenticeship will take. For me, it has been the best part of a decade. And some of that has been my own self-doubt. Some of it has been my deep love of learning. I'd like to think that most of it is the willingness to just honour this calling, to recognise that this is really complex work and it takes time. So coaching mastery, the willingness of the coach to do whatever it takes to become that deep and clear presence for another human being. We need to serve our apprenticeships be willing to heal ourselves, hold a number of complex paradoxes. This is how we become great oaks on Planet Coach and what a total labour of love it is. If you're ready to explore more about your self-doubt, I want to invite you to take the self-doubt archetypes quiz. It's totally free and you'll uncover your particular flavor of self-doubt. It 
turns out self-doubt is not this amorphous cloud of woe. There are 12 different types of self-doubt and finding out yours is the first step to getting a handle on it. Just head over to www.sasspetherick.com backslash archetype for all the details.